Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest today is Emily Pine, author of the extraordinary number one best-selling memoir, Notes to Self, which has been described as razor sharp and raw. Her story is utterly original, yet as familiar as my own breath. Yes, Emily manages to tell her own personal story in a way that allows other women to feel that their personal story has been heard without having to bear public witness to their own trauma. The former wild child that was Emily, as described in her memoir, went on to become an incredibly successful academic. As Professor of Modern Drama Studies at University College Dublin, Emily is interested in memory and trauma in culture and society, and her work includes detailed examination of the Commission's report on child abuse in Ireland, also known as the Ryan Report, and we will reference that throughout the episode. Emily, it is so nice to finally meet you. I haven't seen you before. We haven't done this, but um, I've had your voice in my ears. I've been listening to the podcast. So I feel oh, like you listening to you for ages. <laughs> well, I'm kind of a bit the same because I've been stalking you as well, you know, because you do that before you want to talk to someone. So yeah. I was listening to, I was watching some podcasts and interviews you did. Yeah. So I kind of feel like I, yeah, I, well, I don't, I don't imagine to know you, but you must have that sense having written notes to self that people know these intimate details about you that they wouldn't otherwise. But do you kind of forget that sometimes? Or is that always just that little something there? I think um, you have to build a wall in your brain and pretend that these people don't haven't read descriptions of bodily fluids <laughs> and things, right? But I actually think the harder thing was when my friends read the book. So things they didn't know and suddenly had to had to, you know, I definitely felt like that was much harder than meeting perfect stranger. I'm like, well, I don't really right, know. Okay. Um, but people in your own life, you know, learning something about you. I'm like, oh, right. Now we have to sit and have dinner together. Yeah. 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 No, I think you're uh, brave. Is that funny thing to say, isn't it? That like, what does it really mean? You know, it kind of half means, yeah, glad you did it rather than me. <laughs> <in a way. laughs> but what I think is brilliant about it is and what I do love about it is that what you've shared is a common and are common experiences. Like it's not like you've shared something very uniquely you, although that is your unique experience. I'm not saying that everybody has had all those experiences, but lots of women have had the same bits of experiences. And I think that's the real power of the book is that you read something and you go, oh, her too, you know, or, oh, I recognize that. 
Oh, and it's just such a comfort, really, certainly even personally, but to other people, I think. And, and I think that's the wonderful thing when people do take that. I don't know another word for brave. Do you know another word? Um, courageous? Maybe courageous is, is better. I, I tend to just use honest. I think that, yes. you know, we're so used to publicly women in particular, but people do it. And I, you know, I know you're the same. We try to avoid big gender generalizations, but I think women in particular are encouraged to sanitize their narratives and to self-censor all of the time so that when you read someone talking about the things we're not really meant to talk about publicly, that does feel like, oh, okay, it feels brave, but actually it's not that brave. It just happens to be open and transparent. Yeah, yeah. and I like honest. It's the characteristic that I admire most. Well, not even admire, that I expect most and want to give most. If you lie to me, then you reduce my significance in your life or something. I I don't know, but I think it's really, really important. So it's really nice for a stranger to share that honesty. And it's hugely cathartic for the reader. Did you find it cathartic? I mean, I'm sensing that you did as you were writing, not once it was published, but as you were writing, did you find it cathartic? It did in the sense of releasing lots of emotions and memories and experiences that had been quite pent up or that I had actively tried to forget in some cases. But I think that that sense of release is then also accompanied by a lot of pain, right? Because you're reliving experiences. And I do feel, and I feel this about nonfiction in general, that if it's to be good, then it has to have an authenticity of experience to it. And authenticity, I suppose, is another way of of saying honest as well. And that if you want to get that authenticity on the page, there has to be a self-examination. And it comes back to something you were saying earlier, which is people read it and think, oh, I, me too, right? Or, or this, has, this is also true for me. And I think often it's not the event that the exact same thing that someone else went no. through. I think it's an emotion, right? You recognize the emotion of vulnerability or loss or fear or not liking yourself very much uh, or being in difficult scenarios. And so, I, yeah, I think I think it's the catharsis is is then for the writer, but also for the reader, right? Through finding a way of releasing their own or even experiencing their own emotions. Yeah. And I think one word that you missed out, one behavior that you missed out in those is thinking, because I think that's it. It's in your honesty and in your writing. I think you open up your thoughts and your thinking process. I like to refer to it as a process because I don't like to make something solid out of thoughts because they're not. It's a process. And I think really essentially what this book feels like is that you just opened up your brain and allowed us to see your thinking process, albeit beautifully written (laughs) and pulled together. But that's what's nice, because I think that's the thing. I think it's our thinking that both gets us into terrible trouble and also is our liberator. And that's something that I feel strongly about and something that I'm kind of passionate about letting people know is that if you're not thinking your thoughts, well, then you do need to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> you know, um, it's you and you're thinking them and you can change them and you can monitor them and you can label them for what they are, you know. But what I'm really interested is, as I, as I started to um, stalk you and, and learn more about you, is your sort of fascination with memory obviously what you've written is a memoir um and I kind of you know for me it's a series of essays it's you know a record and an appraisal of critical events in your life it's like a book of remembrance your memories what interests me is also 
memory is at the core of your academic research as a professor of drama. And um, I'm really interested because I'm interested in memory from a neuroscience perspective and from a psychological perspective and from um, an empowerment perspective, understanding how you can use it and how memory can fool you and send you down wrong avenues and ways. But you then you take this out and you're looking at it from a cultural and a societal perspective. And I think that's really interesting. And as I talk through various things, I'm really keen to kind of learn some of the insights that you've learned from your work and how some of those can be taken for the individual to grasp to sort of improve their experience of living because that's the whole thing. We don't exist in a vacuum. We function in all these social contexts and environments. But what I want to do is just for listeners, Emily's book, if you haven't already read it, is Notes to Self. And it's a series of essays. And if you haven't read it, it is an absolute must read. It's great. I actually have two copies of it. I have hard copy and then I actually have it on Kindle. Well, I can highlight bits on Kindle. I don't want to destroy the book and they're easier to scan then. I always write all over my books. Yeah. Some of them, Some I have that thing from when I was a child that don't mark your books because I won't be able to sell them on. <laughs> my know, mother, you know. know. <laughs> Library books, um, yeah. Yeah, 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 sort of. But actually, in terms of the book, it's a series of essays that are your memories of critical events. And probably one that's most talked about probably is the first chapter, which is your essay on intemperance, which is about your dad, who was an alcoholic and your relationship with him. And then you also speak very openly and honestly from the baby years when you were trying to have a baby and infertility. And then you move on to a few other topics. You have one uh, of your essays is entitled Speaking, Not Speaking. And you have a wonderful line in it where you say that I did not really realized that stories had to be true. I thought they only had to be interesting. I love that because for me, that's a prime example of the importance of context. (laughs) Because yes, it has to be true if, you know, if it's in a relationship in some regard, but then sometimes it's better not for it to be truthful in that regard. And then actually what you really want as a writer is for stories to be interesting and entertaining. So it's fabulous. But I suppose in the context that you're talking about it is that your sense of loneliness and kind of not fitting in as a child in that you kind of didn't know the rules. That's what it kind of it jumped out to me like that everybody else seemed to have the manual but you didn't. And they all knew what to do. And I didn't. And that's certainly a feeling I would have identified with as a child. And who knows, maybe everybody feels the same. Yeah, that that's spot on in terms of a diagnosis. It's exactly how I felt as a kid that, or maybe I didn't feel it as a kid, but I understand now looking back, and that's the process of memory, that looking back, I realized that I was just puzzled. I didn't really understand how other people worked. And I still struggle with that, you know, to understand what emotions other people are experiencing. There's often this sense that women are naturally empathetic or naturally, you know, very open to other people. And I, they aren't. It's a skill that we learn and, and some people are better at it than others and some brains are better at it than others. And mine just isn't that great at it. And so as a kid, I was just you know, I could see everyone else playing games, but I was, I didn't, I didn't really understand what the rules were. And so, and actually it's funny that you pick up on that moment because for me, lots of people focus on things to do with the body as aspects that must have been difficult for me to write about. But actually that moment of the fact that I was caught out as a child 
what I thought was telling interesting stories in order to to make people like me. I thought that that's what I was doing. Yes. Um, but I got called a liar. And because the stories weren't true, I would, you know, come up with exotic kind of adventures yeah. I had been on and, and didn't have any basis in reality. And that for me is one of the most shameful admissions in the book that yeah. because I was ashamed about it for years that I was that you know that I was called this name and that meant that meant that I was a bad person and mm. think about it now I think about how so many children are vulnerable and I was a really lonely mm. kid and in a not very happy scenario and desperately looking for a fantasy life to be true yeah. and and how many kids probably go through the same process and and how many adults probably go through the same process as well yeah, I, and it's funny. I happen to be reading um, the Three Godmothers. I think it's called by Marion McInerney. It's just been published. It's fiction, and it's my bedside reading. But the mother in that, she's a single mother, and she just creates this whole fantasy life for her daughter of who her father is. So he goes from being an astronaut to being a, you know, a miner. You know, but that's just what she does. Now I haven't finished the book, but it was kind of funny. It kind of resonated in that and in that same chapter because I suppose ultimately in this chapter. Your parents separated when you were five or six and didn't speak to each other. And so you became the channel through which they communicated with each other, which I, I think is a very cruel thing to do to children. And that's me being very judgmental. But, no, you know, I, I agree. I don't think they did it deliberately. No, um, no. I, I think you know, it was the early 1980s. There wasn't the awareness that there is now about how to divorce or how to, I mean, it was illegal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I tried to be forgiving, but it was a really rubbish scenario. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you are sort of incredibly forgiving, but that's the context. And you speak about a night where your mum was out and you take a phone call. I can't recall how old you were in the book. You will, I'm sure. But where your father rang and said he was going to kill himself. And it's pre-mobile phone days, pre-internet days, and you're left alone as a relatively young child with this knowledge, which is kind of pretty horrific, really. Can you recall how old you were? Yeah, um, I actually go out. I was somewhere between eight or ten. Um, and there was a babysitter there, so I just want to make it clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's so many things that as a kid I did had to, and I think so many kids have to encounter, which are adult emotions and adult experiences mm. that are so far beyond our capacity to understand. And you understand that something terrible is happening, but not really what that means. And the truth is my father was an alcoholic and suffered greatly from depression and no doubt he meant it in the moment and um, that he said it but the good news is that he didn't try to kill himself that evening but it left me with and it left my sister my younger sister as well with a legacy of feeling deeply insecure and yeah it's very very hard to trust anybody after that and you're constantly afraid and it's you know I was then in my late 30s, when my father did go into liver failure and ended up nearly bleeding to death. And I remember the phone call, you know, and the text message and so on that he sent and me then phoning him and thinking, I have been preparing for this moment my whole life. Right. And you just, just that sense of emotional awareness of, oh, I, this has been coming. I have had this in the back right. of my head now for about 30 years of knowing right. that he's going to die at some point. And, and again, the happy news is that 
he has the constitution of an elephant and he didn't die <laughs> somehow he yeah. survived. Um, and he hasn't had a drink since 2013 so oh that's fantastic yeah that really is fantastic my father became suicidal when I was 15 so I had some sort of kind of concept but it just felt for me that everybody and I mean my father took to his bed so it was very different and my father never drank alcohol in his life but he was back then uh, the diagnosis was and I've talked about this on the podcast before um manic depressive I think it's bipolar now but I would argue that he was just very deeply depressed and then when he wasn't he was just so happy not to be depressed that it appeared like you know and he was a very intelligent man and a fast talker he never did any of those manic things that you associated with people who have mania and spend money and and take things apart to put them back together again he never had any of that um i think he was more deeply depressed and anxious rather than anything else but when i was 15 he took to bed and spoke of nothing other than ending his life and nobody in my family did anything like i was the youngest my mother got very cross how dare he? Doesn't he love me enough to stay here? Do you know, she took it as an insult that he would consider taking his life. And at the time, my boyfriend, um, teen boyfriend, you know, uh, his father was a psychiatrist. So I kind of just went to him and said, is there anything you can do? My dad won't get out of bed, you know. And he came up and saw my dad and said, under no circumstances have him committed that he'd try and treat him at home. But the treatments didn't work. And then ultimately, he sent him for electric shock therapy, which is horrific and awful. And so I have this double-edged sword thing of the guilt that I was the one who instigated the shock treatment, but yet I felt I was the only one doing something. Anyway, he lived till he was 87 and just cycled through his depressive states time and again. And that's kind of the way it is. But you were much younger. I can't imagine even trying to fathom kind of what's going on. At least when I spoke to the psychiatrist, I could get a sense of you know, that dad had basically he just said, look, you know, he's not seeing things in a realistic way. Anyway, kind of moving on from that. Another thing, because it's memory really that kind of runs through everything I think here. You say at one point, as a child, I told story after story about my parents intoning them to myself and to anyone else who would listen as a way of staving off the threat of non-existence. And yeah, I mean, I suppose that's what memory is. It was that you... I mean, I know you felt as a family unit because divorce didn't exist, that you didn't exist as a unit. But then also as yourself, is it that you felt invisible or? Yeah, I mean, always. I always always felt the need to do something to make people see me. And, and, and I mean, it comes, I suppose, from that sense of being verified or validated somehow by external processes and and I'm just a classic extrovert and some people who are introverts and get that sense of themselves very much from their internal lives and I'm horribly dependent on external validation and I see that now and you can again you can look back and kind of in hindsight being 2020 diagnose yourself but yeah I mean I, I think just in a and this is the academic part of my brain talking and it's funny because when I wrote notes to self, I thought I was doing something completely different, right? It was getting away from my day job. I was really quite kind of burnt out of my day job. So I was like, right, I'm just going to go and write a non-academic book. And it's exactly the opposite of what I meant to do, right? I meant to, you know, be climbing some career ladder and I'm just going to go and do this thing that everyone will hate. But I'm going to do it for me. And now I look at it and I think, well, obviously, it's a memoir. (laughs) (laughs) It's about memory theory. And, you know, the point about memory is that it's all about suggesting a continuity of the self. 
that we, mm. through remembering the past, we're like, oh, I'm still that same person. I'm further yeah. down the road now, but I, I still have a connection with my younger or my former self and that sense of continuity. And, and I think that came through really strongly for me in writing notes to self is to say, oh, this has always been an issue for me, or this has always been something that I've done. And that I now, I just do my storytelling in a different way now. And I have different kinds of life experience that I can use to relate and I have different kinds of audience and I'm much more secure and I think this is the crucial point for me about people ask me why did I write notes to self and you and I were talking earlier about bravery and partly it's because I don't have to be that brave anymore I'm you know I'm not insecure in my life I have a work that I love and a job that I love. I have a partner um, who's incredibly supportive and we've been together a couple of decades. My family is, as all families are, you know, go through challenges and struggles, but we're really close and we are a team. And um, none of those things were true, you know, for the yeah. experiences that I'm writing about in notes. And so I think when you feel safe in your life is the moment at which you can go back into the previously dangerous memories and uncover them and say and have a bit of compassion for yourself as well and and say okay right that was also me jumping forward it was something that I planned to talk about but just that you've brought it up now the sense of self is something that fascinates me and I really do want to write a book about that and at the end of the book you say in and I'm paraphrasing forgive me but you say sometimes my current self wishes that she could say X, Y, Z to her former self. And actually, I was seeing that as you acknowledging that there actually really is no constant self, which is kind of interesting because the thing is the brain constructs self and it constructs it from information that it gathers and holds on to. It doesn't distinguish whether that information is accurate, incorrect or or otherwise, or even valid or useful. It just takes information and constructs the self. But sometimes we hold on to that and we see the self as something independent that exists. Of course, you have traits and personality traits and things that you're more likely, you know, if you're a fundamentally anxious person, you can't suddenly become this real chill, laid back sort of person. They're there. So the self is this combination of your genetics, your life experiences, your fundamental traits, all those kind of things. And also your adaptive behaviors and how you use them. But for me, what jumped out about this in terms of the speaking, not speaking, and you saying you wanted to be seen. You see, the thing is, we create ourselves or our brain creates us in part from what we see reflected in others. Okay, so you really, really struggle if you're not seeing anything reflected back at you. And to my mind, and certainly a little bit in my own past, because I used to struggle, well, who am I? In part, that's why I became an actor, because in my upbringing, love was conditional on how you behaved. Do you know? So that's very confusing as a child because you can go, oh, <laughs> who, wh- what do I need to do? Oh, no, she doesn't like when I'm doing mm. that. And it, it's really quite confusing. But for me, and this is terrible and, and I'm not doing therapy. I'm just, you know, it's just my natural instinct trying to, to figure these things out. Like, I just wonder, for me, my parents were so wrapped up in their own heads. You know, obviously my father was ill and my mother had her own challenges that seeing me, wasn't something that it was a priority. And also I was a fifth child as well. And I'm just wondering, your parents were going through so much themselves that they were keeping you alive and healthy and all the rest, but they weren't doing that reflecting of, this is how I see you in my eyes. So you have the sense of being invisible, which is probably one of the worst things for any human to feel like it's, it's kind of tough. 
Yeah, I think, again, I think a good diagnosis. Um, and I think, you know, through completely understandable processes. I mean, my dad's addiction takes all of someone's attention. They put that thing, whatever it is they're addicted to first and before yeah. and above any of their other needs and any of the needs of their family. And um, my mother was desperately trying to support two children um, on a single income. And, and it has to be said to have a little bit of her own life too, which is incredibly hard um, for a single parent. And she was busy and maybe didn't see me. And again, that's okay looking back. But at the time was, I think, a lot of the reason for my acting out because it wasn't just telling stories. I had an eating disorder um, from a very early age. And, you know, then I started bunking off school from the age of 13, smoking, drinking. You know, my teenage years were just a car crash, really, um, uh, I mean, metaphorically and literally. Right. And so it was kind of and, and really self-destructive behavior, because if you don't feel like anybody cares about you, then you don't care about yourself um, yeah. on a really yeah. simplistic level. And I but I also think some of it is is endemic to childhood in general. And I think that eating is I mean, you know, you see it with so many kids that the only thing they can control in their lives is food. Yeah. And yeah. No, it's a control issue. Is that sense of control over our own lives or our own bodies and if you don't get it then you will it will come out in in a in a negative way i think it's a parenting issue you know and i think people are much more attuned they actually see parenting as a skill that you have to acquire whereas in the past people just had babies you know i often think it's really funny you have to have a license to have a dog or you have to pass a driving test but you can just have babies and know nothing about how they work or what to do and and i do think in the past not quite. And I mean, you talk about commodifying memory um, in the marketplace, and, and I'll come back to that. But in some ways, babies were a commodity for women in the past. It was something that gave them a sense of, well, now I'm a mother. And there was a lot of work to be done. And I'm not dissing parents. You know, some parents were absolutely amazing, and intuitively so. But for others, it was more about them controlling you and then expecting you to understand how to work in the world suddenly at 18. Whereas now I think parents are much more in tune and understanding that your role actually is to gradually teach children about control and about controlling their own emotions and about how they might interact in the world. And and I still see parents doing it wrong as well. They reward kids with sweets for good behavior instead of actually trying to get them to see that if they clean their room, they can find things easier when they want to go play football because that's the reward. You need the intrinsic reward rather than than the sweet thing. But you talking then about your wilder years as a very, very young teenager brings me nicely to your chapter, Something About Me, which I really wanted to talk about. You know, you start this chapter about a really shocking part of your life in a way, if you think about it from multiple angles, given how young you were. But you start that chapter with, I'm not here. And so to me, it seems like you became this observer. You knew you were doing these things. Perhaps somewhere you knew it wasn't the best thing for you, but yet you were doing them. But prior to that, I think or in this chapter, you say that you'd been coming increasingly anxious and you weren't sleeping and you would lie in bed, then dissecting and rephrasing everything that you'd said during the day, reflecting on everything and how you'd got things wrong. I actually think that bit is really very normal behavior. I think that's what 
everybody does. We all do. And that's where we get into trouble. It's that ruminating. And in fact, we would be far better off speaking out these things. And you find that other people, oh, I thought that. Oh, I never noticed that. But we don't, yeah. you know, and and, um, and the thing we have most in common is the thing that we are so reluctant to say. Right. Yeah. I call it. I still have it. I mean, I'm really relieved mm. to hear you say it's normal. <laughs> I call it 4 a.m. brain, you know, when, yeah. when, I've, when I've had enough sleep that basically I'm kind of the day's exhaustion is gone, but I'm not actually rested. So I wake up. I mean, you know, I was awake at five o'clock this morning. OK. And and I'm low, you know, my spirits are really low. And right. And I just start in on that self-criticism. And I know my rational mind is going, you know what? You've got to stop this. This is not doing you any good. You've got to go back to sleep. Try to not think about anything. And I always think it was funny. I did a mindfulness course and I do meditation quite a lot. Um, okay. Which I always thought was a way of getting in touch with your thoughts. But actually it's a way of, of getting rid, not getting rid of them, but just no. getting to see them and not get caught up in them. And that's why it's been a really positive process for me to learn to do. Because you're right, our brains are not always our friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it can be if you understand how it works. I think to me, if you wake up and those things are kind of going through your head, I would harness them and write them down and work with them. And, yeah, <laughs> I know. But just kind of play around with them. I mean, really, all it is, is your brain in a way, probably trying to make sense of. We do do it. It's about framing it and trying to understand, well, why is that kind of niggling away at me? And actually, you know, do people really care? And and sort of, I suppose, what can I do about it? And do I really want to do something about it? You know, and, and either accepting, well, hey, that's just how it is, or actually, no, I'm going to do something. There's one thing that really sort of strikes me in this is that you were you were going to nightclubs, very, very adult places. These weren't teen discos you were going to in London. And you were 13, 14 years of age. You were engaging with men, adults. There was people aware that you were that young. And this is what I think a lot of people don't realize. That's not very long ago. And I mean, that would have been similar sort of even further back. And um, I don't mean to excuse the times were different, but they were very different. It's a very odd thing to explain. I mean, just a few years before you would have been going to nightclubs at 13 or 14, which should be over 21 or, or whatever. I don't know if you were familiar with Mandy Smith. She um went to my school in London. Did she really? Yeah. You see? Like, and I mean, that was public knowledge, do you know, that at 13 years of age, she was with Bill Wyman, who was 47. And then married him at 18. And then her mother went on at 40 something to marry Bill Wyman's first son, who was 30. I mean, to me, that said much more about her mother than it did about her in that regard. And I just wonder how that fits with you, whether you are very kind in the book and I don't want to push you beyond a boundary. You tell your own story. Sometimes that does, as you say in the book, sometimes that, you know, in your acknowledgement, sometimes that slips over into other people's stories. But do you hold any of that responsibility on your mom? You know what I mean? That, yes, you were enacting these behaviours, but do you feel that your mom could have done different to prevent those things from happening? I think everyone could always do something differently. Um, one of the things that I found in writing the book, and I 
gave the book um, in draft form to my family uh, almost a year before it was published. Did you really? Yeah, they read the first draft. Wow. Really important to me. Um, and and I ended up, it turns out, and this is the fallibility of memory, I had gotten some details or years wrong and someone saying, no, actually that was 1985 or whatever, and um, that that happened. Um, one of the, the really difficult things about that was giving that chapter to my mum to read because she did not know a lot of the content of it. Okay. And I thought, and my partner said, I think you're, you're going to have to say it to her in advance. And we had to have this incredibly difficult conversation where I said, you know, I, I did drugs. And she said, okay, I suspected that you did, but I didn't know. And she said, you know, I always trusted you to kind of be doing the right thing. And, and maybe, the, maybe the fault was, I projected, I performed this really independent self and maybe she wanted to believe it, you know, that. Yeah. And what about when you told her about being raped, really? She was just incredibly sad. And no, it was okay. a terrible thing to um, to have to do to your parent. I mean, in decades after the fact. And so, uh, you know, there's nothing she could do about it at that point, apart from consoling me now, which, you know, we are we are very close. And she had to look at the idea she had had of me and then she had to acknowledge the reality. And it was a very, very difficult process for her. And I think that she felt that she would be judged. And what I found after the publication of the book and what I I hope she has found is that people are enormously sympathetic and Mm -hmm. say, you know, we're all only human and all, all doing our best. I had several, and I talk about it in the, in that essay, I had, several really close friends um, who died um, as teenagers um, during that period. And two of my closest friends who, who, who survived and who are very well now, um, but who left school at 15. And the difference between them and me is my mother. And my right. mother refused to give up on me. And there were lots of dimensions of my life that she didn't know about, but she knew about school and she kept me in school. And she managed, you know, to just find a way. And it just so happens that I love education and I love learning and I love English. And she got me to do kind of creative writing course and so on. Ways of continuing to keep me engaged. And I I think that's an important thing to note when dealing with a troubled or challenged kid is that there isn't one right way. And to just keep the conversation open. Um, whereas I think if she had been trying, the times when she did try to control me and threatened to send me to boarding school or said, you know, you can't leave this house, I completely rebelled. Whereas yeah. when she actually allowed me to have a bit of independence and space, perhaps I didn't, you know, I mean, it's not like I chose to be the victim of sexual violence, but I was, how to put it, without blaming myself, which I did for years. Um yes. Which I think is really very common, really very common. And particularly in those times, I think that's the things like Me Too, etc. have changed things completely. What people don't understand, like even when I was a teenager going out, if you allowed a man or a guy to buy you a drink, there was a certain sense of, well, I got you a drink, so what's next? You know what I mean? So, I mean, I would have been very wary of letting people buy you drinks, like very, very sort of very different context. Yes, it's still that context, even though no matter how much of a 
confident thinking you were a modern woman, you kind of grew up with this sense of, even though we used to say, oh, it's why is it always the girl's fault? Or why is it? You were still brought up with that, that it's your responsibility or it was back then. And when you're quite a young woman and you're finding your way around, that's quite challenging. But that was kind of quite the norm really was that you got yourself into trouble. So it was your fault and you shouldn't have been in that situation or you shouldn't have had that many drinks. And if you hadn't, have, you know, then that wouldn't have happened. And so that blame is quite normal. But also there was that sort of societal sense of pointing fingers. I mean, I'm just going to read something because in reading your essay, which is a very moving essay, the Mandy Smith came to mind, you know, because I remember thinking there was, this is a bit off, you know, but I kind of looked back because I wanted to get my timing right. And I found a few interesting things and I'm just going to read them out because I just think it, it gives a little sense of the period of time, what things were like. So in 1986, Mandy Smith was to be interviewed on Irish television on show Saturday Life, but cancelled when RTE decided that she would not be interviewed sort of as a guest, but would be spoken to from a seat in the audience rather than on the set. And this was because RTE said she was not important enough and that she might give a bad example to young teenage girls. Now, this is a 13-year-old who was dated and groomed by a 47-year-old man and ultimately married him when he was 52 and she was 18. But this is what our national broadcaster said in 1986. So she might give bad example because, you know, that's the way it was. But also she wasn't important enough. Because she was only the 13-year-old that was being shagged by a rock star. Like, how horrific is that? And we forget, like, I lived through that then. Then you think times have changed. And I moved on and I found a piece in the Irish Times from 2011. And I'll spare the journalist's name, but it's easy found online. And it's about Mandy Smith, sort of, where is she now? And it says in bold capital letters, she had it all. And then it goes, model looks, party lifestyle and a rock star boyfriend. Except that Mandy Smith was only 13 when she met and started dating former Rolling Stone Bill Wyman. When the relationship between the teenager and the grizzly rocker hit the headlines, Smith became notorious as the original wild child. And then he moves on, talks about other things and says she now has a website and she's working with young teens. And he says on that website, her official biography on the company's website skips over her wild teenage years, focusing instead on her credentials as a pop and fashion icon, TV presenter and author. Like that's 2011. Yeah, that's because women are still only valued in terms of their bodies and in terms of who wants the value placed on those bodies, who wants them. Right. So Mandy Smith is no longer 13. So she's no longer this kind of taboo, exciting sexual object. So now we'll downplay her importance even now. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And I even found that shocking because I lived through that and I kind of go, God, it really was that bad. But you take it as normal in the time you're in. That's the thing that's difficult to kind of understand. You kind of touched on this, that your mum continued to nurture and send you on creative writing courses and et cetera. And of course, your father, I mean, your career is not that hugely different from your father's in that your father wrote and explored and wrote about drama and playwrights and Brian Friel, I think. And, yeah, and, and, and connection, I know. And yeah. always brought me to the theatre. You know, that was a, right. the kind of strange thing about my slightly unorthodox childhood is there were plenty of things I didn't get. I've got a ton of culture. Um, yeah, you know, like, and always taught by my parents that reading was something to be loved and enjoyed. And you know, if you didn't like a book, 
that was a perfectly valid thing, right? Now you're a critic and you don't like a book. So, because reading is something you should love and it's an, wow. an escape into another world. And as a life skill, I think there's nothing better. And it's funny because sometimes people ask me, you know, what my parents think about the book and how did they feel about me publishing it? And I, you know, on the one hand, they wouldn't be the kinds of people to go telling all of their problems to the rest of the world. Certainly not my mother. My mother would be kind of, would try and protect you, right? If something yeah. went wrong. But they were enormously proud because here I was becoming a writer. Publishing. What they'd yeah. always <laughs> so yeah. there is that really yeah but why did you have to write about us <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know, I know I know I know yeah no no but I think it's wonderful and I do think the line actually I found it here now is about the self-blame or the not classifying as rape you know you said because I was raped by someone I knew and not beaten up I did not class as, as rape and that's what a lot certainly my generation and surprisingly even seeing it kind of going into your generation was this sense that you had got yourself into a situation that you shouldn't and you got your comeuppance in a way uh, and that's where the self-blame comes from but I do think it's very much um, you know you've shone a light on an experience that is shared by a lot of women and a lot of young girls. So I think it's kind of important to write about that. What I'm interested as well, and this is kind of where I think your academic work in some ways, and I don't know a lot about your academic work. I, you've published as well. You've published amazing books on memory, etc. Et but they're academic books. I don't mean but they're, but they are very academic books and very expensive as those academic books okay, go. They're not, well. they're not, don't wash out and buy it. They're not for the general <laughs> reader. But suddenly sometimes people say to me, you know, you this is no to self as your first book and I'm like mm, no, no it's not and no, I know it's not academic as well and it's funny to work in those two fields you know to feel that you have this academic persona and then you have this more kind of public persona yeah. really don't see them as separate people there's this continuity and yeah and I see the continuity because I kind of see that I mean I, what I like to do is take the complex neuroscience and make it accessible but also apply it to these conversations I'm, yeah. I'm having you know I'm just interested in people in the human condition and why we do and how we can make our our lives better and stop beating ourselves up and those kind of things there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started What I really find very interesting as well in terms of, I listened to one of your events, I think you had, you're involved with the Irish Memory Network, I think that yes. is, that, did I get that right? Yes. And actually you were talking about perpetrators and I spoke actually to Colm O'Gorman last year about his experience of clerical abuse and then he became a psychotherapist and helping people, but it was absolutely critical to him that he also dealt with perpetrators. and. 
you very much were looking at, I think in this paper that I don't know whether it was you were just speaking at an event that you had, but you were talking about someone from the Ryan report about someone who, first of all, what I really liked was, first of all, you spoke about him as an individual, as a human being who had asked to be removed from the situation, who had done everything, who actually even said things like these children, these boys, I think it was about industrial schools, deserve the very best and I am not qualified to do this. And then only after you explain that, do you drop the bombshell that he was one of the most violent perpetrators therein. But I think it's a very, very important point that you make that perpetrators are of all sorts of crimes of varying magnitudes are human beings first. And unless we try to understand the circumstances that allowed or brought them to that, we will never eradicate. And it bothers me, you know, particularly when you look at child abuse and paedophiles who commit rape, because not all paedophiles act on their urges. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. But just damning them and putting them away and punishing them is never going to solve anything. You have to somehow get into understanding, not to say it's okay, but understanding to prevent further action. I agree. I think, and obviously I've done quite a bit of work on institutional history and in particular on listening to survivors and recording their conversations. And we have a collection of stories by survivors that we've recorded for the National Folklore Collection, which is held in UCD and which is private in the sense that, you know, people need to ask permission to access it. But these are the stories of survivors. And myself and Dr. Kristen McCarthy, who put it together, and it's an ongoing project, started it because there were so many people who felt, who had given testimony to the Ryan Report, for example, or to the current Mother and Baby Homes Commission, who felt that they still hadn't been heard because their story was meant to fit into a certain box or because they were interrogated in certain ways. And so we wanted to give them the opportunity to speak without being censored or without being second-guessed and to just believe them and to accept their story and then to give them the recording and the transcription of their story so they had a sense of ownership over it. And that has possibly been the most profound work that I've done in my academic career um, is to listen. I think it's really positive that we no longer live in a total culture of silence, which we certainly did um, before the church started to lose its authority. I think it's a very positive move that we are, and I say we, you know, understanding that that we is very complex and big. I think as a society, Ireland is starting to listen to survivors, but until, and this is what I think you're getting at, until we listen to the range of complex testimonies that are out there, certain silences will remain and we won't actually understand. And I also think that the processes of commissions and, and also the processes of the media newspaper headline grabbing story doesn't really do justice either to the national history um, or to the individual story. And that's why people feel, and it's, it's amazing to me how people who have experienced terrible abuse in their lives and what would make them feel better is to be listened to. It is yeah. a simple thing and it is still such a political and such a rare thing for it to actually happen. So is this part of your industrial memories project? Yeah, we got we have government funding um, from the Irish Research Council um, a few years ago um, to do a kind of study on the legacy of the Ryan Report, um, which was published in 2009. And coming up to the 10th anniversary of the report, 
we did various things. We digitized it. We worked with an academic called Dr. Susan Levy, who still works in UCD in computer science. And she did this wonderful thing with the data from the Ryan report. She digitized the whole report. And we were really interested in the question of who knew what and when. And she's an expert in networks and, and identifying networks of people, like who was talking to whom and how did they know each other? She was, you were able to do a qualitative analysis yeah. where you could see the links and, yeah. and create trees for anybody who's never done that kind of research. Once you've digitized and put the words, you can actually see threads that you and I wouldn't be capable of seeing because it's a huge report and you just can't hold it all in your head. Exactly. And anyone who's interested, actually, she created a tool that says on our web website, which is if you just Google industrial memories, you'll find it just to explore it. And what she did is create a visualization of it, you know, so that you can click on, for example, mothers, and you can see all of the people that mothers wrote to or contacted or phoned or went to visit in relation to the children that were incarcerated in industrial schools. And what it does, I think, is nail this lie that parents just gave their children up or forgot about their kids or whatever. So it's a much more complicated story than we're often given. And the data is there, but it's often very hard to use, right? The Ryan report is 2,600 pages. The Mother and Baby Homes Commission report is 3,000 pages. Your average person is not going to sit down and read it, right? Those of us whose job it is to do so will do it. But, you know, it is really important that we have ways of accessing this and feel empowered as readers to access it. And so that was really my work on industrial memories. And I think it's very important work because I think in the modern age that we live in, particularly with social media, etc. And people just jump on stuff and they retweet stuff. And you're just getting sort of very edited stuff from newspapers, depending on whatever journalist is writing about it, their slant. It's nice to have a resource where you can go to to actually look at these things. If that is something that you are interested in, you can actually inform yourself. I'm wondering one thing that I did wonder, because I find it very difficult to listen to some Mm. of these stories. And and I mean, I totally understand the need to be able to tell your story in any context is important. You know, even if there's been a row, everybody can understand this. If there's been an argument and there's two sides to the story and then someone comes in to sort it and they just say, no, shh, hold on, let's just forget about it. And you kind of, no, but this. And they go, no, let's just leave it. Actually, really what you've got to let the people do is get rid of that story out, say it, you say it, and they say, now, okay, that's done. Let's get rid of it. Because we have that need to, this is what happened and I i don't know why it happened. But telling the person to stop actually only keeps it going round and round and round in the head. So it really is important to kind of allow people to do that. But I'm just wondering, how do you protect yourself? How do you cope with taking in this pretty horrific information? Is there something that you do or is that something that you find easy? You talked earlier about building a wall in your brain. Is that something that, and and also about empathy, is it something you have to work very hard at? I think it's probably an advantage that I'm not naturally empathetic, right? So that I, I, I'm enormously compassionate and sympathetic and I, these experiences are terrible and I will not pretend that there are not times when I have to physically push myself away from the desk and walk away and it can be 11 o'clock in the morning and that's it I'm done for the day right there's nothing else that I'm capable of doing because it's too hard and I remember in one of the conversations that myself um, and Christopher recorded in UCD this lovely man who had been in an industrial school and had been sexually abused there asking me was I okay 
and saying, you know, is it all right? Can you listen to this? And I thought, yeah, tell it and you have to remember it. So I the thing that I can do is to be here and be here. Yeah. But it is very hard. And oddly, I sometimes I find the happy memories the hardest, which sounds very strange. But in the testimony, you will get people remembering someone who was nice to them. Yes. And it is an exceptional experience. And they will remember being given a single compliment, being told once that they were good at something. And they, 60 years later, remember it. And that I find horrifying, especially perhaps because as a teacher, that's my job, right, is to tell students that they are good at things. And I'm passionate about that. And here were kids who were told they were stupid and bad and rubbish you know, and they were the detritus of society and they should be full of shame and fear. And that makes me very angry. But oddly, it's the nice memories that bring it into focus. And you think that's such a tiny thing. And you have had to cling to that. I've spoken to Lem Sasse. I don't know if you know yeah. him, the poet Lem Sasse. So he's a guest and he lived in care. His story is rather tragic, you know. I mean, he was actually taken from his mother and he was fostered for 12 years and then um, the foster parents just gave him back, which was really just awful. But talking to him about that exact thing, that there was one individual who made a huge difference to his life. There was one of his, um, what do you call it, Um, social worker. Um, But then there was this one individual when he was trying to escape what was essentially a jail for teens, these poor boys. But he ran away one day to say, look, I'm trapped here and I need a home. I need somewhere to live. And this was just a civil servant. And then he ran back and got into trouble. He told them all the rest. But that civil servant just decided to break the rules. Hmm. And he found him a home. And rather interestingly, I think the estate where he did find him the home, all of the roads are named by poets, (laughs) (laughs) which is amazing. Lem was a poet from when he was a child. It was just in him. But I just thought it was interesting. But we were talking about that. And I honestly believe that. And I think if you flip that up, that we often feel disempowered when horrific things are happening in the world. But the thing is, little things can make a huge difference. And if all of us just did a little thing, we could transform the world or just one person's life. And I firmly believe that if you can find one act of kindness every day. And the thing is, if you witness an act of kindness, witness it, mm-hmm. you are more likely to engage in an act of kindness. Just witnessing it because there's a release of dopamine or something in the brain that yeah. makes you feel good. But that's for me, I flipped that because I found that reading Lem's book, I Know My Name Is Why, that they were the bits when people were nice that I kind of, you just, <laughs> you know, you just crumpled. It's that sort of, I think it must be related to that crying when someone wins X Factor or something. Yeah. You, you know, it's kind of, there's some sort of relationship. But yeah, that kind of got me as well. And I think then really what you've done through this book as well is you've come to realize that you had more control than you realized. And you come to a point where you actually say, I was now just is relative, but I was just lonely. I was just unhappy. I was just lost. Now, a lot of people would see that as, oh gosh, you know, that's the end. But actually you're realizing that was also your impetus to kind of take more control over your life and start living it 
Yes, I think so. And also, I think then later on to start writing it, right? And sometimes when I talk about notes to self, I can almost feel people thinking, oh, I'm not going to read that. Sounds a bit grim. And I always want to say, no, no, I'm, I'm writing it from a place of happiness. And it's not that, you know, my life is without problems, but always that when you feel able to look at the difficult emotions um, is when you can start to acknowledge the good moments and the good emotions too. And so, you know, the last essay in the book is an essay about being an academic and yeah. the specific challenges of that. Um, but it is also about getting to do a job that I love. And so, you know, sometimes I think, and it was funny because earlier you were saying, I have this desire to go back and hug my 15-year-old self and tell yeah, yeah. all right. And actually, I nearly almost called the book, Everything is Going to Be All Right. But I have that sense of the book itself being evidence of me having made it. And, and I also yeah. have the sense that if I hadn't had those difficult experiences, maybe I wouldn't be the person I am now. And I, oh, of course I you wouldn't be. You see, that's the thing is we are the sum of our experiences and it is how we often don't have any control over the experiences. It is how we respond to them and what we do with them. And what I love about this is I would say to any parent who has a teenager that they're worried about, read this book to anybody who has felt that they threw it all away. Because that's the thing. When you're a teen, you make mistakes and you think, oh, God, that's it. I can't ever be this person. And I think every day is a new day. Like it just starts today. And I'm amazed, actually, to be honest, the amazing trajectory of your academic career. You know, I mean, you became a professor very, very young. It's just incredible. Even if you had been that nerd that you feel that actually saved you really in the end, you know, yes. the nerd and the competitive spirit, you know, kind of just pushed through. And I think, you know, that's the thing. When we're kids, there is something, an essence of who we are until it's bet out of us. <laughs> and I think it's important to kind of reach back down there and say, well, do I still want that? I do love the last chapter in your book. It is really that. It really is reconciling and saying, I love where I am now. And I also that you love that you're a woman in your 40s. Do you know what I mean? And yes. I mean, I never would have thought that. And it's very hard to think otherwise because we live in such an ageist society that I feel so much more comfortable in my own skin. I am en enjoying life much more as I get older than I did. Teens are hard. Twenties are hard. It actually really does get easier, despite the fact that society is so ageist and particularly so to women, which kind of brings me back a little bit to your notes on bleeding and other crimes. Yeah. And, you know, obviously a lot of women will know what that is about. But I would say not bleeding becomes a crime, too, yes. because you become old and wizened and dried up and uh, will we don't need to look at you anymore. You've no value anymore. So that sort of happens if you let it happen. And I do think that's something that needs to be talked about more and more openly and more honestly. But there's something that you said here, and I thought it was interesting and liberating. And I think it was in response to shaving and all those kind of things that women have to do to make themselves look beautiful or whatever we think is beautiful. And you, you said this paranoia is a crucial part of how women are policed, how we police ourselves. And I think that's critical because when you say that really the power lies in us we don't have to police ourselves and we should make a conscious effort to stop policing other women and I think we're guilty of that I think we police other women an awful lot and I think for a lot of women who make it they feel that there's not enough room for other women up there they feel that they've got there and I I think that has to change that women have to start 
opening up and kind of helping other women up. It's still hard, as you say, in that last chapter in academia, it's still primarily men at the top who seem to... I get to to... be really lucky, actually, though. I get to be in a department with more female professors than any other department in the country. I know. (laughs) Amazing. But I completely agree. I think patriarchy basically wouldn't work if it weren't also supported by women. Right. Mm. And it's not just about gender inequality. It's about inequality. Right. This is the logic of success, which is some people succeed and other people don't. And the difficulty with equality is that some people have to give up some of their power so that it can be shared. And Mm. that that is a real problem. That is a real stumbling block. And, you know, it's brilliant that you and I are having this conversation, but when when are men going to have this conversation? Yeah, you know, I mean, for me, the big thing that jumped out in you, because it seems to be just rampant across universities, and it preys on women like us, I think. I'm trying desperately to break off the shackles of perfectionism. And I would be that chronic workaholic and the overworker. And I mean, I overworked to the extent that I made myself very ill when I was in university, which manifested in pain, autoimmune disease, migraines, all those sort of things. For others, it can manifest in breakdown if we want to use that or mental health issues. But it is seen as the norm. It's hard for people in other jobs to understand this. They go, well, no, you work nine to five. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I remember trying to make a stand on it in university. And I was told that we are very fortunate in this university that our academics and researchers are so passionate about their work that they are willing to work over and above and beyond the hours they are required to do. So therefore, unwritten in, if you're not prepared to do that, well, then you're just not passionate about your work, etc. And this overworking, yes. And I mean, I do think a lot of the men are very clever in how they do it because they won't actually ask you to work extra hours, but they will present you as an extra piece of work that says, if you do this, this will be really good for your career. And you say, but I have all this to do. Well, that's entirely up to you. But if you do this and, and actually, you know, if you could do this, this would really, you know, and actually what you find a lot of the time is you're doing the PI's work and your own PI work. And I ended up at one point working through the night to kind of just make it all work so that I wouldn't disappoint or not achieve. And I had that added thing of going to university for the first time at 42. So like I was always feeling like I was kind of playing catch up and needed to prove myself. But there must be a point where you see that your employee essentially is sending emails or sending reports to you at four o'clock in the morning and you you actually can say, oh, see, you were, see, you were burning the candle again without saying you need to come in to me. You shouldn't be working these hours. You know, you, if you accept that work that, you know, was done in the middle of the night, you are complicit. And whether you, you know, that defense of I never asked you to work in the middle of the night is ridiculous. But I remember again bringing it up and I was told that if... <laughs> If you had trouble completing your work within the normal working day, you should have told us because we would have helped you manage your time better. Absolute nonsense. Right. It's always individual. And there are things that we can do as individuals. Again, it comes back to your point about women policing themselves. I think we as workers police ourselves as well. Right. And constantly saying, oh, how are you? I'm so stressed. I'm so busy because we're projecting. We're buying into this culture and we can change that about ourselves. So 
I do try to set much healthier boundaries um, and I do try to just put less on my to-do list. Sometimes I find that very, very challenging because I am addicted to yeah. the achievement cycle. But you're fortunate to do something that gives you joy yeah, in exactly. itself. Exactly. You know, exactly. and it's for you. So that's what I learned. So I took time out in about 2017 and made an appointment with myself and just listed those things that bring me joy and what I want to do and yes sometimes I still fall into the traps and I still work but I'm doing things that I know bring me joy and that I know are speaking to my goals I'm not doing them so that someone else will take the credit and that their career builds up while my health declines and I do think that's a a really important thing and I think women need to feel that fear and just go for it that you are valid in yourself I've kept you really long. I do want to just touch before we go in terms of I'd love to hear more just about and this is your academic work in terms of memory as a marketplace. And I it's transactional and, and also, I suppose, your work in terms of theatre and, and why we have to retell these stories. And you talk also about empathy being key within the marketplace. And actually, just going back to your point of empathy, I don't know if you listened, I did do a small podcast, a booster shot on empathy. And it isn't the all good thing that we think it is. And like any other characteristic or emotion, it runs along a spectrum and you can be empathetic in one situation and not in others. But what people often forget is that empathy is inherently biased. We are more empathetic with those that are like us or of us. And so therefore, empathy can be one of the most racist, sexist, things on the planet. It's not inherently good. And I suppose this kind of brings me to this question around, and I'm not phrasing this very well, but you explore memory through theatre and culture and art forms and look at the whole impact and almost why we have it and what we do. And I'm curious to know whether, and this is a huge question probably, but what are the benefits of it and what are the risks? Because there has to be both really. So I'm really interested in the kinds of stories we tell about the past, and I'm particularly interested in how those stories represent painful experience or the painful past. I mean, I think maybe I should move into happy memory. That might be a slightly more joyful experience. And no, that, but it is me, trauma that you speak about and trauma shapes. Trauma that I work. And I think also, you know, before I wrote notes to self, I was, I was, you know, not really thinking about my own pain, but I was definitely gravitating towards experiences that reminded me. So I wrote about sexual violence in plays but not right. about myself, right? But about other people. The purpose of my, I mean, I think we need to tell, we need to tell again, I'm saying that we, um, which is kind of questionable, but stories about the past give us a sense of where we come from. They explain kind of mistakes that we've made previously and that idea of never again, right? So we, yeah. with testimony, the purpose of testimony being that you understand what happened so it doesn't have to get repeated. It does, I think, create, even if it's an illusion, it does create that sense of continuity and that sense of connection to the past. And I think, you know, we see that in national commemorations, um, you know, looking at the 1916 commemorations four years ago, oh, nearly five years ago now, that sense of the nation having a single history that we can all invest in, in some ways. But I think it's also important to recognise that that's a product and a commodity, and it is marketed to us. And it is a story that could be told as a result in very, very different ways. And it is asking us to buy into things, potentially, so we don't ask other questions. So Ireland's 
Mexico has an institutional system for refugees, for example, it's called yeah. provision. And while we are looking at the 1916 story and the Irish being the victims of colonialism, perhaps we don't have to look at the crimes of the present or indeed the crimes of our institutional recent past. And so the processes of memory are complicated. And, and I mm-hmm. think as a result, repay us thinking critically about them. So rather than just accepting the story that we are being sold, seeing ourselves not just as passive consumers, but as active co-creators of meaning. So that we see the role we have in remediating the story and keeping the story going. And if it's a story that we don't agree with because it silences certain aspects of the non-desirable past, then we protest about it. And, you know, that could be something like, you know, the 1916 rising, or it could be, and and the fact that women were written out of it, despite being a part of the events. Um, Or it could be, you know, the protests around repealing the Eighth Amendment and the way in which those protests said, this is not the story that we want to tell about ourselves as a country. I mean, it's also about this is not how we want women's bodies to be controlled and legislated. But on a cultural level, that's what it was. It was like, we want to tell a different story about where Ireland is now. So I think memory intersects with all of those things. It does. And it also intersects with identity, which is sort of what happens on the personal level as well. Your memories form part of your identity. And, you know, you need to kind of be careful with those memories, which ones you nurture and which which ones you forget. And I think there's a fine balance with that kind of commemoration as, as you spoke about and with remembering in that. And again, as you touched on, so you say 1916, and as you touched on the perpetrators and the social context, that often, you know, we are biased and we look at these memories with blinkers on, you know, we're very empathetic, but we're not, we have no empathy then for things that are outside that or, you know, whether they're perpetrators or or witnesses or small incidental players. And so I think that's why I I was interested in, you know, your concepts here and your way of of looking at it. I think it's, whilst you write academically, I think it's an interesting piece to consider bringing into the general discourse for people to actually start thinking more critically about some of the things we do. I don't mean in criticism, but more critically, because I see a lot of, we have huge sympathy for victims uh, or survivors rather of mother and baby homes, et cetera. And yet we're quite happily warehousing people with dementia in homes who don't want to live in homes. We're quite happily still doing that. We're quite happily during this pandemic, allowing older people to die while People are advocating for, come on, economy, and we have to shut this down. And I honestly don't feel that would have been happening if it's 25-year-olds dying. Do you know? And so therein we have this horrific othering of people. And I mean, Ireland does not have a very good human rights record currently even, and most particularly in terms of older people and how we treat them in hospitals, aside from this pandemic and before it, you know, locking geriatric wards in hospitals. That's prison. That's prison. And I've had people come back to me and say, oh, but it's for their own good, because if they go walking around, they might fall. And you go, well, the thing is, if the 45 year old who's had a hip replacement goes walking around and they fall, they're in trouble, too. Why do you lock this ward? Because you value this person less. If you need more staff to make sure these people don't fall when they would actually like to walk and for their sanity walk out. But People are so accepting. It's so kind of inherent. And as you say, the horrors of direct provision, I mean, it's kind of still everywhere. (laughs) I got into a row on Twitter the other day, but 
we still have this mind your own business mentality. It's very, very, you know, you're a nosy parker if you think you need to point out that something is not appropriate. You're a curtain twitcher. And that's very evident in terms of this pandemic where there are still obviously people. I know someone living in apartments in town and there's parties still at the weekends at this stage and people defending. And I don't want to say anything. I, my heart breaks for teenagers. But whilst they may look like they're doing no harm, they may well be killing their grandparents with this new strain. And yet, if you actually point something like that out and say, look, this is happening, it's killing people, it's you're terrible. And you kind of go, but that's exactly what allowed clerical abuse happen and all those things. It's the, you should mind your own business, just let them get on with it. They're not doing any harm. But actually, they are. And, and I think it's funny, we have this ability to uh, when someone points out and these reports, suddenly the whole nation can see what a horrible group we were. But it seems like as we're living through something, we lose that capacity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me. And um, mm. it's partly because it's easier. And I think it's also partly because we're trained. There's a weird kind of tact about it, you know, which is don't look at the difficult thing um, and don't intervene. And I know that you have yourself talked about the kind of brain science, right, of not speaking up. And, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and how we're taught, I mean, individually, but also culturally, these very clear messages that you know, the messenger gets shot. <laughs> but do you know what? That is OK, because that is about social survival. And yeah. not everybody needs to speak up. And the thing is, that's what I was trying to get across in that particular episode was for social survival, you actually need to abide by those rules. Yes. But we need people who can speak up because they may then get the society to realise that oh, we need to look at that. So both, neither is right or wrong. We are social creatures. We need to abide by social rules. And that's why, in a way, we experience things like shame and guilt and all those kind of things and loneliness and, and all those things. But we do need some people who can speak up. And I wouldn't put myself in the same boats, but they were the likes of Martin Luther King, you know, in the real big sense of things, you know, who can speak up and unfortunately lost his life, but led to great change. I've kept you way too long. This whole book is a on how to survive and thrive uh, in life, which is always how I like to end the podcast is by the guest. If you could give one tip, uh, you've certainly survived a lot and you've definitely gone on to thrive. If you were to give advice to any of the listeners or your tip, brother, what would that be? I think my current thing is that sometimes our brains lie to us, and but our bodies rarely do. And that right. actually treating our body as if it were a kind of brain right as if it were able to do some thinking for us so if you are tired just physically tired listen to that right um don't override it by saying you need to get one more thing done on your list if you are happy it's often it's a physical experience allow that if you are sad there's nothing wrong mm. you perhaps you're sad today Al again allow that and allow just be in our bodies because I think we separate ourselves off from, I know I do, I separate myself off from my body so much. It's almost like I'm a brain pulling this like body around behind me. 
I hope that you have enjoyed listening to this episode. I will include links to Emily's memoir, Notes to Self, and to the website Industrial Memories, where you can explore the digitised Ryan report on child abuse in Ireland. I will also include some links to support lines in case any of you found the content triggering. Thank you so much for listening. 